You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. If you're following us on our social media platforms, you'll know how absolutely thrilled we are that Getting Lit with Linda won in the Outstanding Education Series in this year's Canadian Podcast Awards. Thank you so much to those who nominated and voted for us and for all of our listeners out there. And as always, to my producer, Marco Timpano, who, by the way, is the person who introduces me each episode. If you want to know more about his podcasting skills, you can visit his website, marcotimpano.com, for which there'll be a link in my show notes. Have you ever felt as if you were carrying the weight of Atlas? And no, I'm not asking if you're lugging around the Scottish band that did a cover of Taylor Swift's songs, although I'll include a link in my show notes for that as well. I love this cliché or expression, the weight of Atlas which, as I'm sure you, my listeners, know, suggests being burdened by some great psychological weight. And I'm sure you'll also know that it finds its origins in classical Greek mythology, a reference to the titan god Atlas, who leads the titans in a war against Zeus. Sidebar, Zeus was pretty much an irascible, punitive, self-entitled god, and I'm pretty sure you all know someone who's like this. But we'll return to him at a later date. For now, Atlas, alas, was defeated, and, as you may have guessed, he was therefore condemned to carrying the heavens on his shoulders. So you may at times feel like you are carrying the weight of Atlas on your shoulders. You, my dear listeners, have all probably endured a dark period in your lives. And so you probably also know what I'm talking about, a period when it feels like you are burdened with far too much, and you can't possibly carry more. But then more comes, and your weary self does endure it, because what other choice do you really have? You use all your energy to put one foot in front of the other, hoping that somehow things will change. In some instances, certainly not in every instance, But in some instances, you may realize you have no choice but to accept that you must change first. This certainly held true for me about three years ago. I had lost my father just after having lost my mother, and the grief I felt was deepened by a series of simultaneous and inexplicable experiences that made the grief so much heavier. Well, On one particular day, just to tip the scale in terms of the frustration and heaviness, I lost power in my apartment. I sighed, stuffed my laptop into my knapsack, and headed for a local cafe, which I knew still had electricity. I was sitting there, just jabbing at the keys on my laptop, trying with little success to get some work done, while this woman, another patron of the cafe, kept striding back and forth beside my table. I could feel her bustling beside me when she finally leaned in toward me to ask if I would mind her using the electrical outlet by my table to charge her phone. 
No, no, not at all, I said, waving my hand and gesturing toward the outlet. And then she pulled up a chair and plunked herself down beside me in order to chat with me. To this day, I still don't remember what about. I was really just very tired. At last, I gestured toward my laptop and I said I should probably get back to work. Not that I had done any real work that day, nor had any real ability to concentrate. But instead of leaving, she laid her hand gently on my arm and said, No, wait. Then she extended her arms outward and made this scooping gesture as if she were picking up firewood. I don't understand, I said. She leaned forward. Stop picking up other people's dog shit, she replied, adding, it doesn't belong to you. And with that, she patted my arm, stood up, unplugged her phone, and left the cafe. I was speechless, and I haven't seen her since. Well, I might not have been carrying the weight of the world with me, but her point was made. It's this kind of moment, an uncannily exact spiritual encounter, I'd venture to say, in response to such a burden that informs Amy Spurway's crow, but more of that in a moment. First, allow me to say quickly that it's about time that I've dealt with a Canadian East Coast writer, and allow me to say the list of writers from this part of the country is spectacular, so I can't wait to do more episodes on authors like Michael Crummy or Lisa Moore or Joel Thomas Hines, Donna Morrissey, and Alistair MacLeod, and more, just to name a few of my personal favorites. But today I'm going to work with Spurway, whose novel Crow, published by Goose Lane Books, captures the incredible story of the return of Stacy Fortune, also nicknamed Crow, to her hometown in rural Cape Breton. Crow, both the novel and its protagonist, are an absolute delight. She's a rollicking, ribald character who has a no-holds-barred approach to telling exactly what she thinks about herself, others, and the world at large. And readers be warned, she's very forthright. She's got opinions about everything, and her voice is comical and open, playful and disarming, which alleviates the undercurrent of pain that informs the narrative, with good reason. When the novel opens, she's been diagnosed with three inoperable brain tumors, and this diagnosis has fallen on the heels of the dismantling of her life in Toronto. So her fiancé betrays her with a mutual friend as an example. Now, Stacy, or Crow, believed that she could reinvent herself again after dealing with issues head-on, including this messy breakup. Here's one passage from the book. And once again, I was free to be whatever I wanted, including, but not limited to, a nightclubbing cougar with no standards and several credit cards. Not Scruffy Effie's daughter, one of the poor, cursed fortunes from the halfway road. Not Crow, the high school scandal turned university beer pong champ. Nor Stacy, the smiling Viva Rica shill. Not even the future Mrs. Dave Solision, uptown Rosedale yummy mummy to be. I was gearing up to be a friggin' phoenix, emerging in a flash of golden midlife glory, 
rising from the ashes of an ego burned by other people's assholery. But I didn't get a chance to be a full-fledged phoenix, because brain tumors have a way of fucking with such plans, and the phoenix life burns up a god-awful pile of resources in a hurry. So here I am, plain old crow, again. The person she invented in Toronto, Stacey Fortune, that glamorous businesswoman with a slick marketing pitch always ready at hand, stands in stark contrast with Crow Fortune, the person she is understood as back in her East Coast hometown. Now, Stacey, or Crow, has learned to navigate these polarized worlds with an adaptability that a chameleon would admire as she takes on the colors of the place she inhabits. So it would ordinarily be hard to pick her out, except that we as readers are privileged to her first-person narrative and her often-bodied commentary. So we know better. The thing is, Crow thinks she can bypass dealing with all of the problems around her, not exactly by transforming herself, but rather adapting herself to the place she happens to be in. But adaptation is not the same thing as transformation. Just because we adapt to a situation doesn't mean we've been transformed. Crow can't experience real transformation until she faces head-on the psychological baggage she's been carrying around with her, much of which isn't actually hers to begin with. And none of these juicy narrative tidbits, by the way, are spoilers. What I've shared so far actually happens in this rapid-fire succession in the first few pages. But there are important details to explain why Crow is where she is when the novel opens, back in Cape Breton on the east coast of Canada. We'll come to learn that her tumors are only part of the weight she bears, and a part of a more important story about herself that she has yet to learn and understand. We also learn that back in Cape Breton, she experiences some friction, but also wells of deep love in her relationship with her mother, while her relationship with her father is non-existent. She understands that he has descended from a wealthy family, and shortly after her mother became pregnant, disappeared from the scene, some in the town speculating that he committed suicide, and others arguing that he preferred just bypassing his parental obligations, and so he just fled. Whatever the case may be, Crow participates in a long-standing feud with her father's family, represented largely by the icy Sarah Spencer, who would be Crow's aunt, except that, as part of the social elite who work closely with developers and large corporate endeavors, she would really rather not have anything to do with Crow or her lower-class family. Here's a passage that captures one of their interactions when Crow drops by Sarah's house, hoping for more information about the mystery surrounding her family. It begins with Sarah's response to Crow as follows. Here's all you need to know. Her nails tap the edge of her teacup. Your mother was a slut. My brother was an idiot. And this whole island is full of lazy, self-righteous have-nots like you who think that my family owes them something. It has been forever thus, from the day my great-grandfather invested in his first mine here. Oh, that the mine where two of my slut mother's lazy brothers were killed? 
or the one where they hired goons to beat the self-righteous miners, their wives, and their children for wanting water and electricity. I say, unable to tilt my head further or bite my tongue hard enough. Maybe you're the one who needs a history lesson. She stands up and gestures toward the foyer. I'll see you to the door. I trust you've had your fill of tea and honest conversation. I love this passage. It's almost Dickensian in its evocations, like so much of this novel. And it's also not often that I see contemporary fiction deal with issues of class or poverty that are treated separately from notions of race. The Quebec-based writers Heather O'Neill and Kevin Lambert as examples do this very finely, as they also lovingly depict the characters they render, as was the case here with Spurway. This was yet another aspect of the novel that I relished. There's so much more I would love to say about this book, but for the sake of time, allow me to highlight just one more element of the narrative. In all of this, Crow's running commentary includes a vibrant rendering of how she sees people. That is, Crow sees people, their emotional and psychological states, in terms of color, a tendency she initially attributes to her tumors. So, for example... She sees strands of ruby and shimmery rose weaving their way through her best friend Allie's wobbly halo of blue. Now, I won't say more about this except to say that increasingly, she realizes that the colors she sees are also a tip-off to what people are thinking and certainly not saying. Here's one example related to Peggy, her mother's neighbor. The heavy bands of colors shudder and shake. But my eyes stay locked on Peggy because now I know something. Those colors are a fortress of secrets built up around her, and I can see it starting to crumble like an old wall. If she tries to deny it, she'll probably pass out from the stifling shit stink of her own lies. And she knows that, too. What Peggy is hiding from her will eventually be essential to learning who Crow is, the person Crow herself has been running from. And learning who she is will become instrumental to understanding what her gifts are, which are more spiritual in inclination, to accepting herself and her gifts, and to learning to find family and connection from the very place from which she fled so many years earlier. She learns, in other words, to put down the burden that was really never hers, that never really belonged to her in the first place. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Today, my listeners, I have a special guest, the actor and audiobook reader Amanda Barker, who's speaking with me about doing audiobooks. This relates to our current novel, Crow, because, as it happens, Amanda was actually the audiobook narrator for this novel. I begin by asking her about the process of narrating an audiobook, and here's what she had to say. As an actor, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do, and I'm always really excited when I get approached by a publishing house to come on board and and be the voice of such an important work and so many characters. So it is a little bit different every time. But the first part of that process for me is at least attempting to have some dialogue with the author. Well, I guess the first part is really 
reading the book. <laughs> I guess that goes without saying. And in an ideal world, I would read it twice, once just to get a real overall general feel and tone for the book. And then again, to really mark it up and make lots of notes in terms of uh, intonation, tone, ideas for pacing. And I usually have a separate list that I keep with me for pronunciation questions. Do you run some of these ideas by the authors themselves? I do. So each book has been a little different in the ones that I've done. Some have directors on board, some don't. So in the case with my first book, which was called The Shore Girl by Fran Kimmel, Fran and the director, Susan Raymond, had a conversation prior to Susan meeting with me. So Susan was sort of that liaison as director in that particular process. So she she discussed everything with Fran in terms of ideas, notes, direction. And then she and I, in turn, had a conversation using some of Fran's as the author's intent, but also other ideas that she wanted to bring to the table. And then any ideas that I had that I wanted to play around with or work with. So that was sort of my first introduction. That was my first audiobook. But again, everyone is different. I did a book called Disfigured, on fairy tales, disability, and making space by Amanda Leduc. Wonderful book, an important book, because it has an academic, at least in part, slant to it. There are a lot of names in in that book, doctors' names and authors' names, and people who had done research on fairy tales, research on disability, and so on. Uh, as well as doctors that she in her personal life had worked with. So that was really important to me to go through all of the different pronunciations. Some you can find online, but some of these people were personal to her, so they may have a different pronunciation. So, And I didn't have a director on that book, so it was really about a dialogue with her in terms of what that, what that was. And it was actually going through that that she and I figured out that I had a different um, copy Oh, are you serious? (laughs) What happens in that kind of instance? Yeah, we re-record it. So we had already recorded some. uh, And then I had additional questions. And this was a while ago, and you'll know why, because it was where I learned the term BIPOC. Uh -uh. I hadn't heard it before. And in the book, it was originally IBPOC. And I said, so how would I pronounce that? And she said, you have an old copy because it's... (laughs) No longer that we're using the term BIPOC now and we pronounce it BIPOC. So, so yeah, we re-recorded some of that because that came up a little later because she and I had a, had a sort of dialogue throughout the book in terms of me checking in with names and so on. And then with Crow, getting to Crow, Amy's wonderful, wonderful A work. wonderful book indeed. Here, here. And Amy, I should say her full name, Amy Spurway. So that one came to me in a little bit of a different way. So I've known Amy for 25 years. Uh, Oh, wow. So you do know her personally. I do, yeah. So she and I were performers together in a company called the Calithumpians in Fredericton, New Brunswick in 1999. So that's how long I've known her. That might be more. My math might be off and that might be longer than that. But um, we had a wonderful and ridiculous and fun summer together. And we all went our separate ways in various places in the arts because that was a company where we performed and we wrote and... Mm. And did lots of stuff. So she knew that I was reading and doing audiobooks and narrating audiobooks. And um, she wanted to, she's a performer as well. So she wanted to narrate the book 
but the company that they were using in that case was through Toronto. So it had to be somebody in Toronto because this was in the height of the pandemic. And so she couldn't fly out here. And so she said, well, if it has to be a Toronto performer, then get Amanda Barker. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. And that's how that happened. Yeah. It must have been a greater challenge doing this book because of the various East Coast accents. How did you grapple with that? It was an interesting one. There are a lot of accents, East Coast and otherwise, in that book. And, you know, I'm going to out myself here. I'm not from Cape Breton. I'm from the the Maritimes, (laughs) but I'm not from Cape Breton. So I've certainly spent lots of time in and around Cape Bretoners. But Amy, of course, is from Cape Breton, and that's where it's where it's set. So she, myself, and uh, I did have a director on that one, the wonderful Laura Kiswati. We met and had like a three-hour Zoom call where we talked about a lot of aspects of the book, the the magical sort of elements of the book, the tone, the narrative elements, and then, of course, the accents. And Amy... I believe, I believe it was Amy, who really wanted this idea of starting with a Toronto accent and then slowly, chapter by chapter, going back because it's a it's a person from Cape Breton who's lived in Toronto, like Amy did, like so many of us have uh, from from the Maritimes, and then moves back home and slowly, slowly gets more and more into her East Coast accent. And so that's what in that Zoom session we decided we would do, that we'd start her in this very Toronto with just a little hint and that every chapter would be more. So I would, I went through the chapters and, and figured out a percentage. Oh, and wow. so I said, okay, she's 10% or 0% in the first chapter. And then the second chapter, she's 10. And then the third chapter, she's 20 and so on, or however we worked it out. And and so I'd be like, where, what chapter is it? Okay. I'm at 65% <laughs> Cape Breton right now. That's bananas. That has to be a real challenge. It's a wonderful challenge. Yeah, for sure. What would you say is perhaps the most fun moment with this book? There are so many exciting and interesting passages, but what's one that really stuck out for you? I loved, there's a couple of things I love about this book. I loved the character, the Peggy character. Uh-huh. She's one that I sort of identify with in that if I was living out there, that's probably who, who if I wasn't her, I'd become her, you know. Um, there's a rough, there was a roughness about that voice and a righteousness about that voice, along with a very thick accent that that I really, really loved. So I loved voicing her. There's an honesty in Crow throughout the book that I absolutely loved. And of course, I have a bit mm-hmm. of an inside scoop, not only because I'm from the Maritimes, but because I... I knew Amy when she was young, and so I know it's not Amy's personal narrative, of course, but, you know, Amy and I, you know, we partied. And so there's a, <laughs> there's there's a, an openness about that that we have in the Maritimes, you know? Like, there's a real openness of, like, getting drunk and hanging out and making out in the truck, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm being coy, but you know what I mean. And... Amy was very open and honest about that, what that looks like, right? And actually, she told me that one of the first feedback things that she got was that um, 
you know, they said people said it's too crass, it's too rough. There's too oh, many. Oh no, F-bombs. they didn't say that. Yeah, she got that feedback a lot, and I, and you'd have to ask her, but I think she said to me that she did pull back on some of that. Mm. So maybe it is still too crass for some, but it's it's one of the things that it, there's just a true honesty and openness. It's not meant to be crass. It's just how we are sometimes in the Maritimes. I also loved it. I thought it was highly visual, very cinematic. You could see it being yes. made into a movie so easily at some point. From your lips to any producer's <laughs> ears. I mean, I said the same thing. And I was like, please, can I get first in line to play this Peggy role <laughs> or any role? Because it's, it's. Um, I just identified with so much of the book. Amanda, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on Getting Lit with Linda today. Is there anything that you want to add? I think when you narrate a book, there needs to be a certain openness in approaching the text. I think it's wonderful when you can have input from both the author themselves and also the director. And the best way that that collaboration works is when they also respect your choices and what you bring to the, quite literally to the table, because you're going to be sitting at a table for hours on end narrating this book. And when you're allowed and have that ability to really play and just try new voices, try new things, some real fun magic can can come from all of that. And it's wonderful when the collaboration is is sort of equal parts, if you will. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you so much. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.